Welcome to the Truth to Power Show on Radio for Brooklyn. I'm your host, Vijar Nathan, and with us today is Pachanda Bao, a Cambodian-American writer and poet, infant survivor of the Khmer Rouge regime, daughter of refugees and feminist stay-at-home mother in New York City. Her work has been published by Adirondack Review, New Ohio Review, Great Weather for Media, Newtown Literary, and elsewhere. Her poems are nominated for Pushcart Prize and made to limited edition broadsides at the Center for Book Arts. She was a 2019 Emerging Artist Fellow at the Aspen Words Summer Writers Conference as an incoming fellow at the Kundamin Writers Retreat. Most recently, she won the 2020 New Works Grant from the Queen's Council on the Arts. Welcome, Pachenda. Thank you for having me. Thank you, thank you. So why don't we start the conversation off a little bit about... Um, uh, well, first of all, go into your memories uh, of what is the first memories you have, uh, and then we can all live into your writing and how that maybe informs uh, your writing. So tell us a little bit about because you mentioned your um, bio that you a little bit of your familial background. So tell us a little bit more about that. Um, well, I was born in Cambodia at the end of the Khmer Rouge regime. Um, my parents uh, were actually. Um, an arranged marriage that were arranged by the Khmer Rouge. Um, and they uh, were pretty much forced to marry um, and then had me. Um, and my grandmother always says, um, or said, she's um, she's passed away now, but she used to say that I was born when the Vietnamese entered their village to free everybody. Um, so that's sort of a part of like my mythology um, and so I was born there but um, I have no memory of Cambodia at all uh, my mom um, gave birth to me in the village and then when I was old enough to um, to travel um, basically I think just a few months old she just she took me and carried me out of Cambodia and like walked across the countryside um, to, to the refugee camp um, where um, she met my dad, um, although that was a completely, uh, just a, a complete coincidence that she happened to end up in the same refugee camp that my father was in because they had no way of communicating with each other um, when he left. He had actually left before, she, before I was born, so he wasn't there when I was born, but um, he had to leave because he uh, was basically in danger and... and couldn't just couldn't stay in the country so he had to go before we did and then um you know she basically just like walked out by herself figured out how to get through the border and um ended up in this refugee camp and then just took to looking for my father and um didn't didn't find him for a while and then just ran into him one day like just randomly it was it was so it was so completely um just, I guess, like, you know, almost like fate, I suppose. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, my mom says that, you know, she felt so bad for my father because when he met, he met us, he met me, he was so happy to see me, but I just, I just cried because mm. I just, you know, I had no idea who he was and, or anything like that. And that was just, you know, it was sort of this like happy, sad moment because he had missed like the first few months of my life or whatever um but they we were in the refugee camp 
you know, the, the, the timelines of all those things are, are, are really hazy. Like my parents don't talk a ton about what had happened and, and, um, you know, it's not like they, they sit down and like, give me like a history of, of, of that time period. So I don't quite know like how long we were in the refugee camp, but I know we were there for a while and then we, um, were able to get sponsored to the United States. And so then I went to the Philippines to do some, they, they sort of do like a training before you come to the United States to like train you on how to interact with Americans. And um, we were there for a bit and then we came to the United States. I was probably like, the pictures look like I was like one years old or one and a half or something. I, you know, I can stand and walk. Um, and so that's how we came to the States. And, um, I don't really have, you know, all those memories, any memories that I have of that time is just sort of from stories that my parents say, like my father talking about how, um, he was so like just sad because he couldn't feed me and I was like hungry and, um, you know, he just wanted to give me food so badly when they got here, but like they didn't have any money and they didn't have any, you know, they didn't have a way to, to give me food and like, but I don't remember any of that, those things. I think that um, my first memory is probably um, when my sister was born. My sister was born um, in 1982. Um, and I think I must have been like two and a half years old when she was born. But I have this memory of uh, my mother coming to pick me up from a family friend's home where they had like taken me while she went to the hospital to give birth. And I remember, um, I remember like my first memory is actually like full of anger because <laughs> my sister was there and it was just sort of like one of those things where I was like, who is this person? Like, who, what is this thing that's like now a, a part of my world? Like, uh -huh. wh when is she going back? Like, what's going on? I remember, I mean, I, f I feel like thinking about it now, I'm like, how could I have possibly felt those things? Like I felt so betrayed. I felt so angry. And like, that's, those are like my first memories that I have. Of course, like my sister and I get along really well now. Like we're, we're like best friends. Um, but it took a while for us to get there. And, um, and yeah, I think thinking about it now, it is kind of funny that like my first memories are like one of this like deep anger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good, good. And then it's a very interesting story. And I think that uh, when we think about how we start to write, uh, that's something next we'll reflect on. How we start to write, how we start to process our emotions and we start to process the world around us. How did you fall into writing and, how, and what was the kind of impetus? Uh, what are some of the driving thoughts that, that propel your writing? Well, I mean, I think that I didn't really write, start writing seriously or, or writing um, or really sharing my writing until recently. Um, I mean, I think I always have been a writer. Like when I was little, I was just always like writing little things and little stories. And, um, and even like before I, before I knew how to read or write, um, like the real alphabet, like the, the English alphabet, I was, um, I had like made up my own language that I just wrote in. And um, 
I would just, you know, write like random letters and like in my head, those letters corresponded to words in a story and I would draw a picture. And like, that was sort of like, I I think for me, it was just sort of this way of, um, I I think of like making things my own, like kind of making your own power. Um, I think as like children just have so little power and so little places where, um, they're able to assert themselves. Mm. And I feel like I must have, cause I was like, you know, probably three or four, I was just doing these things where I would just like, enter into like the blank page and just fill it up with ideas. And, um, so I kind of feel like I started out like always, uh, being attracted to the blank page. Um, but I really, you know, I never, like it was always just sort of this, um, it just always seemed like so impractical to, to really write and um, to think that uh, my writing would be interesting to anybody else but myself, really. Um, you know, I really, I was pretty, you know, I did, I did well in school, but it was never, I was never like somebody that, um, teachers would, uh, you know, would really like, I never really had like a mentor, I guess. Like I never, I mean, I, you know, my teachers were great and they were really encouraging in lots of different ways. Um, but particularly in terms of writing, I think I always felt like writing was something that Pete, somebody like just told you, you know, just like sort of like in any art, like I sort of felt like you had to, somebody had to tell you, you know, like you were an artist, like that what you're making, you had to be discovered, like what you were making was just so beautiful or important or, or whatever that um, it was undeniable. Mm. And that just wasn't something, it wasn't a kind of validation that I ever got. And so, you know, I would always, you know, I'm always wordy, I guess, like I always would write like long things, like long emails, long letters, like I was always trying to express myself and communicate, um, but I never really did it in a way that, um, you know, I thought, oh, this is, I'm a writer, um, until recently. Um, and it was basically the, the election of Trump in 2006 that really kind of spurred me to, um, to share my thoughts. I think it really, that election felt really, well, one, it felt very personal. Um, it felt, you know, very much like there were big elements in this country that wanted to deny my existence or if not deny my existence, like use my existence um, to to basically oppress others, to, you know, just like use my like uh i suppose like success um in in this united states is like evidence that you know things were fine and things were good and the way things are are um are okay and i felt very strongly especially and i think at this point i had uh, my second child i just felt very strongly that um i just needed to say something i needed to really um take up space in, in a way that like I 
had never really allowed myself to do before. Um, you know, kind of always feeling sort of insecure about uh, my language or my facility um, to um, say anything worthwhile. And then, you know, you realize, well, if somebody like Trump can get elected, then, you know, it isn't really a matter of skill <laughs> like, <laughs> to, to um, you know, to get to get attention. And, um, you know, and you just have to, to speak your truth. You just have to put it out there because um, if you don't, if you, if you don't, um, if you don't say what you need to say, then somebody else, I mean, that space gets taken up by somebody else and like, look what you know, look how much space we give to white supremacists and mm. violent racists and, and, you know, and, and we cover it up with uh, just plausible deniability, you know, but, um, you know, and I just, I don't know, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't stand it anymore. So I started really writing um, poems and, and then I um, started to submit them and, um and really, I've just been very lucky that people have responded to to my writing, and I've been really encouraging um, of it. And so I'm just kind of, you know, that's kind of where I am right now is is uh, letting it unfold and seeing where it takes me. Yeah, and it seems like one thing I pulled from that is that the idea that we can't be when we're egocentric, when we're kind of centric on ourselves, we're, we're shy to share. But mm -hmm. when we when we're focused on the community that we represent, when we're focused on the um, communal experiences that we're representing, then all of a sudden there's more of an impetus, there's more of a drive to share because we're like we can't let our fellow neighbors who may not be as uh, successful or as push forward as we are we want to pull people forward so mm -hmm. i think what i understood from that also was the idea that uh you were able to realize that people are being oppressed people are being pushed down and we want to uplift and we want to kind of bring up people uh so that's something i got from that that's very good you have very good sentiment to to propel forward um, yeah, I hope so. Yeah, yeah. And also, I want to talk a little bit about being a parent, uh, mm -hmm. how that informs your writing. So tell us a little bit about how the movement towards becoming a parent and, and teaching uh, teaching your children, um, how has that informed your writing? Yeah. I mean, I think that for sure be becoming a parent has um, had a profound impact on my writing. I think um, it really... It really uh, just forces me to really be in the moment and to learn how to like take advantage of like any of, of like all material, I guess. Like to, and I think that for me, I have to really build a life in art with distractions. I can't. Um, I can't sort of wish for like a silent, you know, like silent retreats and, and, you know, sort of making art away from my life because I just, I can never really get away from my life. Um, and so it teaches me, I think to, and also um, being a parent just teaches you to pay attention all the time and you use, and you pay attention to all the things you pay attention to, to all the small things. Um, and you sort of live inside these, these 
discrete moments of time and to to really be there um and you know and the kids really like they're just they're so brilliant like they just have so many different ways of viewing the world and their place in it and they're constantly challenging it they're constantly like trying to to change like their circumstances and like anything is it's it's just so interesting because like anything is possible for them like the other day my he was three years old actually so this, it's been a while he's he's four now but like a while ago he we were just walking down the street and my the th- my then three-year-old was like do we live on earth or the moon and it was like completely plausible to him that like we could possibly be living on the on the on the moon because like you know why not? Like, how, <laughs> how, how, how does one know that, like, one lives on the earth versus the moon? And, like, you know, anything, you know, how do, how do we know that anything exists? I mean, they're always just questioning, um, like, every step that they take forward is just, like, this, like, crazy step of faith. Um, and so, you know, I feel very honored to be witness to that um, and be a part of a part of that that discovery for them and um you know i try very hard to let them be and let them make their own um you know have it be their own journey that i'm just like accompanying accompanying them um and i feel like that's very um it's very similar to how i think about poems and art um i feel like not that poems you know just exist in full form around you but just that they they come when they come and um you know if if you're gifted with those moments of clarity to um be able to take take in those moments without judgment and to be able to um give your attention fully to those moments um is just really it's really precious and and really important and i think and then and ultimately hopefully the hope is um that that attention that you that you rein in for those moments like build up to uh something bigger you know like for my kids hopefully like a, a life that um you know, where, where they feel loved unconditionally, which is very, very hard um, because, you know, they're all human and we're human and, and, um, you know, we have lots of failed moments. Um, But it's, it's sort of the same with, uh, with, with poems. It's, um, you know, to, to accept what the poem is um, unconditionally and, and look at it and, and let it be what it needs to be. Yeah. It's sort of how I, how I think about it. Yeah, you mentioned I, I, a little bit of this uh, when you talk about um, something you say, uh, essential truth that you believe is undervalued by society. You're answering about the collective value that we, t- the collective doesn't value ourselves unconditionally. So also reciprocally, how we view ourselves. You were talking a little bit about. Um, tell us a little bit more about that, and how's your journey? Like you were talking a little bit about how in a poem where basically an opportunity, but I understood to restate 
is an opportunity to kind of uh, practice that that mm-hmm. that um, value, would you say? And why don't we listen to a poem, uh, a few poems, and then you can you can kind of explain how, or you can illustrate how uh, we could talk through a poem and okay. illustrate how it kind of uh, illuminates that that uh, value. Yeah. Um, do you want me to read a poem now, or do you want me to? Yeah, you can just quickly introduce a little bit of that practice, and then you can read a poem. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that. Um, I mean, I definitely am very much like coming out of like a background of, um, I think, a lot of conditional kind of parenting mm. where like I had to earn, or I've. You know, thinking about it now, and of course, like, I, I feel like if I had a conversation now with my parents, they would be like, what What are you, you know, what yeah. are you talking about? But as a child, um, I really felt like I had to earn things. I had to, like, you know, get the grades and, and win the prizes and, and you know, kind of be inside that competitive world. And as I've gotten older, and, and certainly with my own children, I just think, like, it just doesn't you know, those, the, those prizes and those, those accomplishments and, and whatever just don't really, um, don't really have anything to say to me as a person or, or even as an artist. Um, they're just sort of outside, external um, markers for somebody else. And I'm not really sure, like, for whom, um, you know, those, those supposed... Uh, marks of excellence are, are for like you know what they're marking I feel like they're probably marking um, you know a world um, in which you know we're supposed to be competing with each other and fighting over scraps um, but as you know but I feel like as a parent and as an artist like the more that I sort of practice my art and and uh, practice parenting um you know, I just see that, like, it just doesn't, it doesn't actually correspond to anything real because those poems and, and the children, like, they they have their own inherent value and they, they always have. And, um, and so I am discovering in myself, like, uh, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm like trying to kind of work that muscle in myself of um, accepting things the way they are. I mean, it isn't to say that you don't like revise and you don't, you know, you don't, it, I mean, it's, it, it's still, it's still work. All of it's work. Like my relationships with my children and, and my family and all that, it's all work. Um, but it's not work to, uh, to earn something, I guess, if, if mm. that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and it's just, you know, it's, it's always, it's, it's always a process. I mean, of course, like I'm, you know, I, I feel like I definitely, uh, you know, I, I, I know the right things to, to say and do. Like, I, I understand, like, you know, like accept yourself, accept your children, like, you know, accept, um, you know, what, what, where you are at this moment as an artist, like, you know, you know, like this radical acceptance of these things, like I understand it, but of course, like I struggle all the time with actually doing that in person. I mean, I definitely yell at my children. (laughs) I definitely, you know, I definitely get very frustrated if, 
if like I feel like this you know this poem is like not being where it's supposed to be or you know feel very frustrated with um you know if, if I get feedback from from people about you know certain poems like I get you know I feel those frustrations because you know we're just we're all human yeah we're all trying yeah, totally, totally. So why don't we listen a little bit to your work and then we can talk a little bit through some of those uh, double feelings or whatever, or selecting work that maybe you had some uh, duplicit feelings about. Yeah. Sure. Okay. Um, okay. So I'll read this poem. Um, it's not published anywhere. And it's been, it's been kind of workshopped a, a few times. So, yeah, it'd be fun to kind of talk about this. This is called trespass. I was not supposed to be there, training wheels gone and pushing forward under my own power. I breached the boundaries my parents gave and then kept going. Down, down, faster and faster, pumping my legs for that thrill of air roaring against my cheeks, until suddenly I was not in control. My body faster than the bike and I flew over the handlebars and melded with the sidewalk. I reached the bottom, a tangle of girl and bike. Someone saw me, kind stranger, came out of their house and drove me home, delivering my battered bike and body to my unwitting parents. But if I had expected some kind of stricken sympathy, some gentle ministrations from them, it would not have been the first time I was wrong. I was punished, as usual, my wounds still red. After all, what is a child's transgression to a woman whose father was executed without trial? What playground injuries are real to a man who had escaped death multiple times? Looking back toward the vanishing point of memory, suffering and grief converge as love, and what can a child glean from a love so complete, yet stinging with fear? My mother carried me in her flagging arms through landmark landmine jungles to the safety of a wing-clipped childhood. And I survived to remember the hot sensation of anger closing over me like a newly formed tender scab. That's it. Thank you, thank you. So um, yeah, it's interesting when you think about kind of these childhood experiences of like um, injury and and going out there exploring and how it's kind of turned around um, into like uh, transgression and then you're you're opening up of your own empathy towards your parents' experience uh, is interesting to think about. Like a lot of times as children, of course, we we don't open up that empathy for our parents we kind of think of it in our terms in our kind of uh, way of looking at the world and then uh, kind of seeing it only along lines of what we conceive of the incident to be about and I guess as an adult we kind of look back and 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 see that the various ways it can be interpreted the incident can be interpreted yeah yeah I mean I think that it's um it has been really important to me to, you know, a, a part of my work has been to like 
understand my position in the world and in history, I feel, um, I feel, you know, in, in a lot of ways, the poems are just a way of, of kind of understanding where I came from. And I feel like, you know, I think that's part of what has um, propelled me to, to write and to keep writing is to kind of flesh out this, um, this mythology, I think, um, mm. because growing, you know, I think growing up as a Cambodian girl, and it's, it's interesting because I never really, when I was like young, I never really like connected the dots that like my parents were refugees. I mean, we were very, we're very lucky. We, um, you know, we ended up in Northern Virginia in the suburbs um, of DC. And so it was really like in a lot of ways, like a very, um, just a very privileged kind of childhood. Um, we had a house and my, my, you know, my parents worked and, um, you know, I think my early years, which I kind of don't, I don't really remember, um, were tough and they, you know, they, they had to go through those hardships of, you know, being in, in a, in a new country without any money, without any, um, real connections. Um, and they, and they work their way out of it. And so by the time I really have like sort of solid childhood memories, it, it was sort of a typical suburban childhood. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I never, you know, in, in like looking back, I, remember sort of feeling very removed from the idea of being a refugee um because we were we were you know we, we we didn't suffer um but of course like the suffering um had just kind of receded into the background and it, and it and it was always there in my childhood and um you know it's just sort of interesting i think as a parent now to like, I've, I, I have like very strong memories of childhood and I have, and I think I have a very, still a very strong connection to, to childhood in general. And so it's been an interesting experience to um, look back at my childhood from as, as a parent of, and to kind of see um, where those connections are. Um, but I feel like in, in my writing, I, I want to be very, um, I try to be very like sensitive to those boundaries of like my story versus my parents' story versus like, you know, any kind of, you know, potential universal story mm. about um, all, all these things. I mean, of course, like, um, I don't ever, I, 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 I don't, I don't want to, I don't like the idea of like being a spokesperson or, or being like a representative of, of anything. Um, you know, I sort of, or, or rather like, I understand that that's a huge responsibility and part of, part of being a representative of like Cambodians or Cambodian refugees and, and that kind of thing is, is to, to be very, to be very cautious about those boundaries of like personal experience versus, um, you know, hi the history of, of all of it. Um, because I'm very, I'm very aware that, um, 
there are very different experiences of um, of America um, as a Cambodian refugee. And, you know, my experience, I think, is, like, very, um, you know, I, I would never want somebody to think that, like, that, you know, my, the way that uh, I grew up was, is, like, typical of, like, all Cambodian refugees, mm. um, because I think that it's not. Like, I think that, um, you know, just statistically, Cambodian Cambodians have, like, a higher rate of poverty um, than other um Asian um, communities and you know lower lower high school graduation rates like all you know all those metrics that um, are indicative of uh, of of really political trauma um, you know exists in Cambodian American communities today um, and my experience just ha- had happened to have really um, avoided a lot of a lot of that kind of um, that kind of violence um, in my in my early life, and so, um, but you know, but we still are all you know we still all struggle with um, the weight of you know of our parents' history and of our history, like of of their trauma. I mean, it, it's always like with you as you're growing up. You just don't necessarily. Um, you know, you don't necessarily recognize it as such. Um, and so it's, it's been interesting to be an adult and to like kind of, you know, have more knowledge about these things. Cause it's not like I, you know, it's not like when I was a child, they didn't really like talk about, they didn't, you know, they, they don't like, you know, they don't talk in detail about the things that happened to them while they were, um, living under the Khmer Rouge, um, but it was always, you know, it's, it was just always something that um, was underneath, like, you know, all of their, their response, you know, their different responses to things. Like, I feel, you know, I, I had, I'd had this realizations um, a few years ago, um, just kind of realizing that I had been parented by traumatized people. And, you know, you don't, but you, you know, when you're a child, you don't realize that you just, are a kid and you just you know you want your parents just to give you a hug or to you know give you validation in these different ways and um you don't necessarily understand why your parents can't can't provide that for you and um and it's you know those feelings that you feel as a child are real and they they do they enter your body they enter your life and they're they're a part of your life so you know, I feel like um, as as an adult, as a parent, as an artist, like I am just trying to kind of work through those those different betrayals um, and to, you know, and to have um, acceptance for all of those, you know, all of those things that were beyond like all of our control. Um, because I just, you know, I just kind of don't want to, I don't want to hold on to like all, all of those things and, and to be, um, to be weighted down um, by all of that. And so in a lot of ways, I feel like these poems about my childhood or my parents, um, 
our way of like you know giving giving them wings mm. you know letting them just letting them go yeah and it's interesting that one of the things you put down is that um a truth will set you free it creates space to move forward and i think what i'm hearing from you also is the realization that there are many truths even within one truth there's many different aspects of that truth as many people are experiencing that truth there's that many truths that uh in any one nexus there's many different inhabitants of that of that area of that space that there's many different versions of that truth uh so it's interesting when you think about it for you just being able to realize that you know what the space you're holding is just one of the spaces out of many that we're right. sharing yeah yeah. Maybe expand a little bit about that. And then, um, yeah, what do you think about that? Yeah. I mean, I think I think that um, that's so true. I mean, I, th I think that, you know, I think that, that people might, like, want to have, like, some universal truth or, like, they feel like, you know, if they can just hop inside some some main idea that like they're they're gonna be set i guess and i i just you know i definitely like i grew up um and my parents were actually catholic and so i went you know i went to catholic school and did all the catechism stuff and so i definitely um you know sort of grew up with this idea that like there is like the truth and the truth is the church and um you know, and this particular version of Jesus and God and, and whatnot. And, um, you know, I, I can see the, um, the appeal in that kind of simplicity. Mm. Um, because like, you know, my, my brain is definitely a mess, you know, <laughs> like, like I definitely, you know, I'm like not certain about so many things and, you know, there's so many ethical quandaries, um, you know, living in the world today, like just, you know, how do you live ethically and how do you, you know, how do you make ethical choices um, in a time that's so entangled and enmeshed in corruption and oppression and, and all those things. And, and, you know, in a world in which we're so, and s some of us, too many of us are like so far removed from real suffering from, you know, the people like just, you know, just seeing like the, the, the pandemic response, like, you know, 315,000 people have died and yet people still think it's like too much to wear a mask to a store mm. or even just to like stay home and like not go out to eat. I mean, you know, it's like, um, it's just also messy and I can understand wanting to like have a set of like rules that you know are the rules and you just follow them and you just do them. And if everybody just did those rules that we would all be fine. But of course the reality is that, um, you know, these rules are, uh, they don't, you know, nothing, nothing comes out of nowhere. And so, you know, as I've gotten older, I've just sort of realized that so many of these rules, so many of uh, things that we're told are the truth 
um, are grounded in um, perspectives that uh, necessarily discount other perspectives, mm. you know, yeah. and, and so, you know, if there is a universal truth, if there is an absolute truth, I mean, I feel like it must be um, unknowable, mm. really. Because yeah. um, how could any of us possibly um, know it all? And, mm. um, you know, how could any of us put any of this really in context? Because, um, you know, all we really know is like our own specific this, this, you know, this one life that we have, um, and, you know, and we have to live our lives inside our bodies, and, um, you know, in our bodies, and our, um, you know, we're, we're always, you know, I, I feel like def as a woman of color, as um, an immigrant to this country, um, you know, I can never move through the world in like some kind of neutral body mm. right it's always like everything um is always colored by um other people's um assumptions about me yeah. and um you know and i think and i think that actually even still applies to like any kind of body it's just that like certain bodies um have been uh afforded the power to ignore what other people are perceiving of them or or even just that like you know other bodies are given um a stature um and an authority that are unwarranted mm. um and and so you know they can just kind of move through the world as if it's like an easy neutral place to be when really what's happening is that their body pushes aside other bodies, other voices. Um, and, and they can pretend that like, you know, people are voiceless um, when that's, you know, that's never true. That's never been the case. You know, like people mm. have always had voices. It's just that people, you know, certain people get listened to and certain people don't. Mm. And also it connects back to what you were saying about in your pre-interview questions about scarcity versus abundance. I think that really is a powerful connection there. It's being able to remind people that we're all coming from places of abundance. And when we're coming from a place of scarcity, then we're kind of, um, we're kind of feeling like we need to push people away because it push people out of the way because there's only so much room on the stage. There's only so much room in the, in the, in the room. You know, whereas when we come from a place that we're all kind of coming from a place of abundance, then we're kind of able to listen more, I think, would you say? Yeah. And um, yeah, yeah. And also, yeah. I, yeah, yeah, I think that kind of connects with what you're saying already uh, about how listening comes from a place of powerful abundance. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, I think that we're all able to make our own space. You know, I, I, I think that um, it's it's like a, a, a false narrative that like, you know, we have to wait to be discovered, that we have to wait for validation or that our validation is is what makes that space that we have. But we've all, you know, the minute we were born, like room was made for us in this world. And so, um, you know, that's what I try to remember when I'm writing is... 
that um, this space is mine, you know, and that um, and I can take it. It's not, um, you know, I'm not taking it, taking it away from somebody by speaking or by taking up this space. Um, it's already, you know, it, it belongs to me and all of us have it. Um, and I feel like, you know, I, I just feel like, you know, if people, if more people kind of understood that um, their space belongs to them and is not, um, you know, in competition with other people that, you know, just imagine like what kind of art could be made and what kind of, you know, what other kinds of things we could be putting our energy on um, instead of, you know, trying to gatekeep or, or uh, you know, trying to keep other people out. Like, yeah. you know, the universe is still expanding. I mean, literally, like physically, like that, that's still happening. So, um, you know, so there's room. So I just want to remind people, this is Radio Free Brooklyn, the Truth to Power show. We're talking to Pachenda Bao. Um, also that if you live in New York City and run for either fun or exercise, here's a way to learn something new about the neighborhood. You're working your workout in. City Running Tours is now offering neighborhood running tours uh, designed for locals in mind. New York City takes pride in the diversity and character of its neighborhoods. And these unique running tours offer opportunity to learn the history of the neighborhood and get personal recommendations from your guide. Choose the tours of 23 neighborhoods, including East Village, Upper West Side, Bushwick, Long Island City, and Roosevelt Island. For more information on these running tours, see the list of neighborhoods and full tour schedule. Check out their website at cityrunningtours.com slash New York City. Um, also, if you're listening to this uh, podcast through your phone, or through the computer, you can listen through your phone. At, uh, just go to the app stores, uh, iPhone or Android, search for Radio Free Brooklyn, and you can download the apps for your iPhone or Android. Uh, please be sure to subscribe to our monthly newsletter for the latest news about new programming and upcoming RFB events. You can sign up at radioforbrooklyn.org slash newsletter. And also just remind everyone that uh, we provide a free and open platform to the community and provide media literacy, education, free expression, and public art. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. Um, as it has been many, uh, as with many, 2020 has been a difficult year for us financially. So every dollar helps us to stay on air and allows us to continue our work in the community. Please help by pledging whatever you can afford. RFB is a 501c3 nonprofit organization and contributions are tax deductible. Please support us in the monthly pledge or one-time donation at slash donate Okay. Um, so now also as we start to close up, as we got like 10 more minutes left, um, I want to talk a little bit about your experience with Spanish literature, which is interesting. Uh, I guess in college you majored in Spanish literature and you were very influenced by Pablo Neruda. So tell us a little bit about kind of your experience with Spanish literature and, and how uh, and how Pablo Neruda was influenced on you. Yeah, I mean, I think um, it's just funny. Like I, I, uh, I just took Spanish in college, I mean, in high school. And, um, and really just loved the language, just loved the, the sounds of it, and um, just felt like it was a really beautiful way of talking. And so when I went to college, I just started taking like more, um, more Spanish literature classes and reading, um, you know, Gabriela Mistral and um, 
Lorca and and Borges and you know all those um, you know greats um, and just were was so interested in the ways um, just like the mysticism and the lyricism of of their work and uh, I don't know just I, I it, it was I was I was thinking about that before um, you know before talking with you like kind of what what was it about Spanish literature that made me so interested versus English literature? Mm-hmm. Um, because I did, you know, I still, I read a lot. I read a lot. I mean, I was always like a big reader in, um, when I was young, I mean, it's, and still. And um, I think that with English, I always felt really intimidated um, by... I guess like the way it was taught, um, it just seemed very, like for me, I think that the reading of, of lit- English literature was really high stakes where, you know, not, I not only had to like, I couldn't read it for pleasure, I guess. Mm-hmm. And that, um, you know, if I were to study English literature, it was just this really, um, just I don't know kind of just really intense uh, project whereas um, you know sort of reading something in, in another language in a, in a sort of a second slash third language um, was was just a different experience um, I really uh, just loved being able to read these texts in Spanish and to kind of be inside a part of my brain that um, I feel is just a little was sort of like less competitive, I guess, where I could just I was just there because I didn't, you know, obviously like I'm not a, I'm not a native Spanish speaker, and so I, you know, there are certainly um, things about that language um, that I don't get, um, but I don't know. I guess maybe it just felt like a little less pressure to be inside that space and I just, you know, could just sort of marvel at the way it stretches to, to fit around ideas and stories um, that were really interesting. And, um, and, you know, and I, and I wonder if some of that has to do with like, you know, like English wasn't my first language. I mean, obviously it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a language where I have, where I'm, you know, the, the best in right now, but, you know, when I, when I was like an infant, like that wasn't the first language that I was taught. And so, you know, I I wonder, I wonder if like the, the, the Spanish literature like helped me access this like pre-English version of myself. And that's why I felt so at home, um, you know, reading Spanish literature and, 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 and studying it and, um, and being really fascinated by it. And, um, you know, and I, I didn't, I, I mean, I really actually didn't start writing poetry until after I read Pablo Neruda um, mm. in those classes. Um, and it was, I think, just uh, like seeing the way that he could just use 
plain language to you know really dig into um, these really profound emotions. Um, you know, maybe, maybe that was what got me started um, because I, you know, I, I, I didn't, I don't have the same sort of uh, responses to like, for example, like Emily Dickinson or Walt Whitman. I mean, I do, mm. you know, I do think that those, you know, they're obviously like they're, um, you know, the mother and father of American poetry, but, um, but I just, you know, I don't have the same kind of emotional connection mm. to their work as I did to Pablo Neruda's work. And I, you know, I, I just, yeah, I just kind of wonder if it's because, you know, I sort of read, read that inside like a non-English space where like, you know, maybe my original self still is. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. So do you have one more poem to share before we end? Sure. Sure. Oh, I thank have. you. Yeah. Um, okay. Let's see. This one's called American Inquisition. Where are you really from? My face, made in a country that murdered its memory, is difficult to place. Every morning, the mirror astonishes me. Let me guess. Please, give me your list of your three unoriginal names. Oh, let me guess. I come from the land of your footnoted atrocities. I am a story to spice up your dinner party conversations. I am a salve for your chafing blandness. I am an honest to God, real life American dream recurring right before your very eyes. Oh, let me guess. There is not a racist bone in your body. No harm intended. I mean, what proof of harm could I show? Who has spit in my face? Who has stopped me in my tracks? And who can be blamed for being a product of their times? Who can be blamed for producing and reproducing those times? Who can be blamed for profiting and profiteering off these never-ending times that allied faces and countries and wars ancient history you say water under the bridge who built that bridge and for whom and under what conditions and now who is guarding the borders i know who this country will claim for its own thank you thank you thank you yeah it's interesting how we kind of think of ourselves in terms of the collective experience of our uh, or our ethnicities of our or our places in the world how you know the the people before us who wore the the similar uh, identities how they experienced the world and how their legacy we're inheriting so it's interesting to think about you know, kind of that we're not isolated in this world as one individual, but rather as a lineage of individuals and how we should be aware of the imprints that have been left before us in those people's eyes, you know, and, and, and how those people who come before us uh, 
have paved the road for us and and, and all this kind of stuff yeah totally it makes makes me think of that triggers in me that thought about uh the legacies and legacy that we're inheriting and we're giving forward so thank you for that thank you thank you okay so we have two more minutes i'll just quickly tell people this is the truth to power show on radio for brooklyn as i mentioned uh radio for brooklyn is a 501c3 nonprofit organization we're here to uplift voices the the truth power show specifically is here to um you know kind of discover our inner truths and how let it empower ourselves in our communities uh kind of talking with and and from a place of authenticity and trying to aiming to talk to different artists and different people um so yeah what do you think about that idea and what do you think about the truth to power truth to power as being a a moniker of the show what do you think about the idea of truth to power speaking truth to power um i think it's great i mean i think i think it's really awesome that um you're able to talk to so many different um artists um you know just like we were talking here about how there's so many different um perspectives and stories um you know within even you know one lineage um, of stories, um, you know, it's just just a fractal of yeah. of human experiences, um, and I think that um, you know that is that is a truth that um, we all have to reckon with. You know that not 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 one of us has holds the power to Thank truth. You. Also, where can we follow you? Uh, where can people follow you quickly? Um, I, I have a Twitter account um, that's at um, Srepeg, which is um, at S-R-E-Y-P-I-C-H-C-H. Um, okay. They can follow me on Twitter um, or they could find me on Instagram, but that's mostly just, uh, uh, sorry, that's mostly just uh, like pictures of my kids. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool, cool. But uh, do you have an author website? I don't have an author website, okay. but I, I need to to get yeah. one. So. All right, so I'll <laughs> add a link in case you get one. Okay. Uh, I'll add a link to that. Okay. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank, Thank you so you. much. It's so right. great. So great to be here. Thank you. All right. Take care, guys. Maybe like 30 more seconds. These are always, but I can let it run out. Thank you, guys. Thank you. All right. Take care.